The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. We're going to give attention this morning to Matthew, chapter 9, verses 35 to the end of the chapter. Matthew writes in beginning in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we recognize that uh, these words that you spoke were vividly true in your day, and they are absolutely vividly true in ours. There is a harvest that's plentiful, and sadly there are too few laborers to go. We pray, Lord, that as we reflect upon your words and as we dig into them this morning you would remind us of the power of the gospel to change the human heart just as we heard in musical interlude form a moment ago that we can come to you confess our sin no matter how vile they are no matter how deeply marked our lives are by the stains from that sin and no matter how much or how many scars we bear from it, that when we confess our sin and repent and entrust our lives to You, we lose all of our guilty stains. You wash us clean and make us new. And You rescue us from certain doom. Grant to us eternal life. May that message never grow cold in our hearts, and may our passion for the field around us not grow dim. We pray for the glory of Jesus. Amen. We finish up uh, this morning sort of uh, our series that we launched in the beginning of the month, a series that was aimed at sort of capturing one of our values as a church, this value that we say is growing to go, that as a church we care about growing in our faith, but we grow uh, not just to sort of be receptacles for growth, but we grow with a vision to go. That our growth is, is generated in us in order to propel us outward into the world around us with the good news of Jesus Christ. And as, uh, as, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, each year we want to sort of capture one of our values and sort of set that as the trajectory for the year for us in that particular year to focus on. And this year, it's the go piece that we want to focus on. And so we have been now for a few weeks talking about what it means to go into our city and take the gospel, what it means to go out into the world with the good news of Jesus and uh, tell lost people how they can be saved. Tell people who are far from God what it means to, to know God, to be reconciled to Him through the blood of Jesus shed on the cross on their behalf. And we spent two weeks looking at what is the gospel, what is the message, the basic message of the gospel. What does a person need to know content-wise in order to be saved? 
And I want to wrap that up, this whole series up this morning, sort of with this passage in Matthew chapter 9, uh, which takes us back to the Lord Himself and gives us sort of a glimpse into His heart, into what drove Him in the ministry that He was about in His life, because I believe it's the same sort of things that must drive us if we're going to go. You don't go because the pastor tells you you need to go. You don't go because you feel some sense of guilt that you just need to obey Jesus and go. Those kind of motivations don't drive you very long and very far. You go because you have the heart of Christ. Because He, by His Spirit, plants within you His heart for the lost around you. And I want to give you a glimpse of that this morning because Matthew gives us a glimpse of that in this brief text at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Jesus was always about the ministry that relates to people. He was always about going to people and telling them how they could be reconciled to His Father. Explaining to them the kingdom. Explaining to them the gospel. Explaining to them how their sins could be forgiven and how they could be redeemed and saved and forgiven. And all of the things that come along with saving faith. But His ministry was not just a ministry that takes the gospel to people and that's it. His ministry was a ministry that takes the gospel to people and calls them to be saved in order that they might be discipled and grow in their faith so that they might then be prepared to go out themselves and tell other people that same gospel that captivated and changed their soul. It's, a, it's a, a process of discipleship that Jesus was constantly working in the lives of the men and women around him. He was going to lost people and telling them how to be saved. He was capturing saved people and explaining to them how they could grow in their faith. And he was always doing that with a view that they could then be launched out to other people to do the same thing, to reproduce, to multiply. Back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, we see him calling the first disciples, the very ones that he's going to be talking to here at the end of Matthew chapter 9. And it simply tells us, walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. It's a simple process. You follow me. I will make you into something that you're not. And then I'm going to launch you out so that you can fish for other people just like I fished for you. You see, it was a calling to a process, a discipleship process that begins with embracing Jesus as Lord and Savior. It continues through a maturity process that, that equips us and grows us so that we might then launch out into a lost world and find other people who don't know Him and do for them what Jesus does for us, bring them to Christ. In Matthew chapter 10, the, the text immediately following the one we'll look at this morning, Jesus, in fact, does exactly that very thing. The thing he said he would do in Matthew 4, when he called them to follow, in Matthew 10, he launches them out to multiply. And in between there, we see them kind of walking with Jesus and following Him and listening to what He taught and watching how He did ministry. And that was all a, 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 a purpose in that. The purpose was that they might grow and mature in order that by the time we get to Matthew 10, He's going to be ready to launch them out so that they can go. There was never an option to just hang around Jesus forever and listen to Him and learn from Him and grow. It was always a season of growth with a purpose of being launched to go reach other people. Paul captures the same thing in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, when he tells uh, Timothy, Timothy, here's what you need to do. What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, 
and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy, I've come alongside you, and I brought the gospel into your life, and I've discipled you and grown you up. Now you take what's been given to you, and you get out there and you invest it in somebody else. That's always been the process. The process is come to Christ, grow in your faith, so that you can go out and multiply by telling others about Jesus and discipling them that they might be able to go out and tell others about Jesus. It's a cycle, and it always has been. And that cycle of discipleship, it doesn't come full circle until the one who's evangelized is then sent to evangelize others. The one who's discipled is sent out to disciple somebody else. I just want to sort of set up our text with that view in mind because I want you to get that picture. Because I think sometimes we short-circuit that picture and we think that only parts of that picture matter. There, there are, are sort of uh, elements of the Christian, evangelical Christian world out there that care only about the first part. They only care about taking the gospel to people and dropping the gospel on them, calling them to faith in Christ and moving on. And as though that's the end of all things. They don't care about discipleship. They don't care about multiplication. There are other segments of our Christian uh, sort of landscape, the evangelical Christian world, that really isn't all that interested in going out and taking the gospel to lost people, but is solely focused on just discipling believers and trying to build people up to maturity. And there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself, but it's only a part of the process. And I want you as a church to capture the idea that we can't be content with focusing on one nor the other. That's the whole process that's a part of the Christian life. And it's a whole process that needs to be playing out in your life and in my life and the life of our church. We need to be about it as a church, a church that cares about going into the world and reaching lost people and making disciples for the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to care about maturing them up in their faith. And we need to care about pushing them and challenging them outward to go and find somebody else and tell them the gospel that they might multiply. It's that discipleship process. And you need to look at your own life and make sure that process is circular and playing out. And if it's not, then ask the question, where am I getting short-circuited? Have I grown content just knowing Christ and gone about my own business? Or have I found contentment just in maturing? And I I love to learn and I love to study and I learn to read and I love to listen to sermons and all those things and grow in my knowledge and understanding. But that's really all I like to do. I don't really care about going out and multiplying and finding somebody else to invest in. That cycle should be rolling in all of our lives. And it's that cycle that Jesus is modeling for his disciples in Matthew's gospel. We see it. He calls them in Matthew 4, follow me. Come follow me. And in, from Matthew 4 to Matthew 10, he's, he's making them fishers of men. And then when we get to Matthew 10, he sends them out two by two and says, get after it. And they get after it. And if you read Matthew chapter 10... You'll be amazed at how he sends them out and what he tells them to do. He says, you're going to go out two by two, and I don't want you to take anything with you. You don't need anything. Everything you need is going to be supplied for you. You just go town to town. You find somebody who will let you sleep in their house, and you sleep in their house until your work is done in that city, and you go to the next city and do the same thing. And you trust me to provide your food, and you trust me to provide a place for you to stay, and all that stuff I'll give you when you need it. Don't worry about it right now. Just get after it. That's exactly what they did. And you know what? If you read the rest of the gospel, you find out they never lacked for a place to sleep. They never lacked for food to eat. They never missed a thing that they needed. Christ provided for them every single thing they needed along the way when they obeyed Him. 
And He'll do the same for us. But in the middle of that, right at the end of sort of this middle section of training that He gives them, of making them fishers of men, we find this last little section of Matthew chapter 9, right before He launches them out. And we haven't been studying Matthew's Gospel, so I'll just tell you, just previous to this, Jesus has, or Matthew has reported Jesus doing a number of miracles. He has healed a couple of blind men. He has healed a woman who had an excessive bleeding issue that wouldn't go away. He has uh, raised a, a, a girl from the dead who is literally dead. And he walks in and says, oh, she's not dead. What are you people crying about? She's just taking a nap. And he wakes her up from the dead. He's just immediately prior to this cast a demon out of a man, a demon that had rendered this man mute so that he could never speak. And Jesus walks up to him and he casts out this demon. And all of a sudden this man who's been mute because of this demon starts speaking and people just cannot believe what they've seen. They can't believe what they've seen. Everybody that is except for the religious leaders, the religious establishment, the the Pharisees, the, the power and control people who were so obsessed with their law. And right before we get to this text, Matthew tells us what the religious leaders of Jesus' day, how they evaluated all the miracles that Jesus had done. And the way they evaluated this was right in, at the beginning or the end of verse 34. The Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. We know what this guy's up to. He's casting out demons by the power of Satan. Now imagine the mental sort of backflips you have to get to logically to make sense of that. He's casting out demons by the power of Satan. That makes no sense whatsoever. And Jesus calls them on that later on. But Jesus has done miraculous things. He's delivered people in ways that that nobody could explain. And the crowds are amazed. And the crowds are following him everywhere he goes. But like anyone who tries to do what's right and good and honorable and godly, there's always a crowd that's going to be a critic and criticize and lie about what's actually happening and take shots at the one who's actually doing things for people's good and their benefit. But you notice Jesus isn't thrown off by that. He just continues about his ministry. And we see in verse 35 that Matthew tells us, Jesus went throughout the cities and villages, all of them, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. It's a great summary of what Jesus has been doing. What does he do? What does Jesus' ministry look like? It looks like him going to the people. He went out into cities, he went out into villages, he went out into everywhere he could go where his two feet would carry him throughout Galilee, and he went to people where they were. He went to them. He didn't park himself somewhere and say, hey, if you want what I got, here's where I am, you know my address, come find me. Did he? He went. He went after them. He went to all the cities and the villages where they lived, where they worshipped. He showed up. And he brought with him the truth. He went to people. He taught in their synagogue. His ministry was a ministry of teaching. What was that like? Well, he would go in the synagogue, and that's a great place for a rabbi to go. You go to the synagogue because in the synagogue people gather to worship, and a part of their worship was uh, the reading of Scripture and the exposition of Scripture. What better place for Jesus to go, the one who is the Word incarnate, right, who could explain it all fully, go where people are already studying it, and explain to them the truth. And that's where he did. He had a teaching ministry where he taught the Scriptures. But that's not all he did. It says that he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. You see, preaching is different from teaching. 
It's not the same thing. In fact, James Boyce says this. He says, preaching is not the same thing as teaching. Teaching is instruction. It has to do with content, and the content is primary. Preaching contains instruction for sure, but it's more than instruction. It's also proclamation, an announcement of what the listeners must hear and to which they must respond. And so Jesus was teaching and explaining the content, but he was also preaching. And the difference between preaching and teaching is preaching is teaching with the added element of persuasion and a demand for a response. That's the difference. A teacher just delivers content. A preacher says, here's the content, and here's why you need to listen to this, believe it, and here's what you need to do. You must obey this, and you must obey it now. There's a difference. It demands a response. The teacher might just uh, sort of go at the mind and deliver content. But the preacher in preaching is concerned about the mind. He's concerned about the heart. He's concerned about the emotions. And he's concerned about the will. He wants you just not to, to know something that you didn't know before. He wants you to feel something that you've never felt before. And he wants you to do something that you're currently not doing. So when I'm preaching to you this morning, my goal is not just to be sort of an information dump. I'm not here to just dump information on you and say, hey, well, there you go. Figure that stuff out. No, I have a goal, and I'm not, even, I'm not even shy about it. I want to give you information and explain to you things that you don't know, but I want you to feel what I'm telling you, not just passively, but actively. And I want you, when we're done with this thing this morning and every Sunday, I want you to do something. I want to convince you that you need to do something in regards to what you've heard. And that's the difference between preaching and teaching. And Jesus did both of those things. He did both of those things. But not only that, he went about, he says, healing every disease and affliction. Now, the every here, I think, literally means every kind or every type, not every individual one. The idea is that Jesus is going through these cities and he's healing all kinds of diseases and all sorts of afflictions. People are coming to him and he's healing everything. Uh, sicknesses and diseases and affliction and mute and deaf and all these different things that people are suffering with. He's just healing them. All kinds of things. And the idea here is just to remind us that his ministry isn't just about teaching, it isn't just about preaching. He cares deeply about those things, but he also cares deeply about the way people suffer and the way people hurt. He's not apathetic to those things. When he comes to a crowd and there's suffering and there's sickness and there's affliction and there's demon possession, he has great pity on people and he cares enough about them and their suffering to meet them there and to try to alleviate that. So his ministry was also one that meets the human needs of people. It wasn't just a teaching ministry or a healing ministry. It was a ministry that went at teaching and preaching, but it also went at alleviating their suffering at the same time. And I want to suggest to you the reality that the legitimate ministry for the Lord Jesus Christ cares about both of those things. And as a church and as individual believers, we need to care about both of those things. And it's very, very important in ministry that we keep those two things in a good balance. Because when we get out of balance, then things go wrong. And you see this in ministries and you see this in missions ministries around the world in various ways. When all we care about are human suffering and human needs, then we go to people and we try to alleviate their suffering, but the gospel never comes to bear. And all we've done is help them with some human suffering only to see their eternal souls go to an eternal hell, which is far worse suffering forever. On the other side of it, if all we care about is telling them the gospel 
and we act like their suffering doesn't matter, then we come off as cold and indifferent. As though people who are just trying to manipulate them, but don't really care about them. No, I think true gospel ministry balances those two things. It teaches the gospel, it preaches the gospel, but it also comes into people's lives and gets near enough to know how they're hurting and cares about doing what it can to help. And that's what Jesus did. He focused on suffering, but he also focused on the soul. And he kept those things in perfect balance. And so when we get to the end of this chapter, that's what he's been doing, and that's what he continues to do. But in verse 36, we see sort of a window into his heart, where it simply tells us that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. He had compassion for them. We see the compassion of Christ. Jesus' ministry was a grind. If you read through the Gospels, you can't help but see it. It's just a grind. Everywhere he goes, these crowds are following him. He cannot escape the crowds. There's no solitude. There's no time alone. Everywhere he goes, there they are. He tries to get away from them, and wherever he goes, they just show back up again. And there's just a constant, constant queue of people who have needs after needs after... It's just a grind day after day after day. They came to hear him speak. They came because they needed to be healed. They came because they were demon-possessed. Jesus was busy, is what I'm trying to tell you. He was busy. You're busy. I'm busy. He was busy. But at some point, Matthew tells us, he lifted his head up from the grind, and he looks out over the crowd. And he just surveys this sea of people that have gathered around him. And you can just kind of see him uh, maybe on a hillside looking out and just seeing this mass of people with afflictions and demons and all sorts of things going on. And he's just looking out over this, all these people with all of their needs. He saw the crowds. He took a minute to look at the sea and just sort of consider their condition. And honestly, when he does this, it's just overwhelming. It's overwhelming to him. And you know, I just think sometimes, I don't know, your life is probably like mine, that you just kind of keep your head to the grind all the time, and it's very easy for days and weeks and months to go by, and you don't ever stop and pull your head up and just look around you at the people who are all around and consider their condition. Jesus could easily have just kept going on the grind and paid no attention, but he stops, and he pays attention to who's around him, and he looks out around him. He considers their lostness. I'm not sure that we ever really stop to look at the lost people around us. We just kind of have our lanes and our things that we do, and we just do them. And we don't stop to consider the people around us, in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, in our city. Jesus saw this sea of people that tells us he had compassion on them. He had compassion on them. His natural reaction to the lostness and the suffering of these people was a heart that was moved by compassion. Now, we see the English word compassion here, and it doesn't fully help us understand what Matthew is actually trying to say that Jesus felt. Because when you hear the word compassion, you think, oh, well, Jesus felt sorry for these people. I felt sorry for people before. I get that. But that's not the word. The word here is a word that literally means that he felt it physically in his gut. That it was gut-wrenching pain that he felt when he looked out over that crowd. The word is a word that, that, that literally refers to the intestines or the bowels. In thought of those days, 
that was where your emotions resided. It was in your bowels or your intestine. Your heart was the place of the intellect. So that's kind of backwards to our thinking today. When we think of the emotions, we think of the heart. And when we think of the intellect, we think of the brain. But in their, in their way of speaking, it was different. When they thought of emotions, they thought of the bowels. And that makes a whole lot more sense, actually, than the way we think. Because, you know, when you're really stressed out or when you're really afraid or when you're really anxious, where do you feel it in your body? You feel it in your gut, right? You feel it in your gut. Have you ever been really anxious or really afraid? Yeah. Or, or feeling just extreme grief and pain over something? You feel it in your gut. You, you, you feel it there. It's gut-wrenching. That, that word has meaning. And that's what Matthew is actually saying here. He's saying, look, Jesus, when he looks out over this crowd and he sees just this sea of lostness, it is gut-wrenching to him. It, it, it generates a physical response from him bodily. He wasn't just casually concerned. He wasn't just saying, oh, look at those poor people out there. Man, it's awful. He just felt it. He felt it. And over and over in Matthew's Gospel, we're told, Jesus had compassion for people. Compassion. Matthew 14, he had compassion on them. Matthew 15, at the feeding of the 5,000, these hungry people, he has compassion on them. In Matthew 20, he runs across two blind people, and he has compassion for these, these two men. In Mark chapter 1, he, he comes across a leper, and Mark tells us he, he feels compassion. When Jesus meets human suffering, he feels compassion. He isn't, he isn't uh, apathetic to human suffering and human needs. He isn't distant from that. It moves him. He feels it in his very body. He simply cannot turn his back and ignore it. And listen, this is what drove the ministry of Jesus. He looked out over the world and he looked over the seas of lost people and he felt deep compassion for them. It drove him to go. It drove him to do what he did. And if you and I are going to ever be faithful evangelists to the world around us, it's going to begin with a heartfelt feeling that lost people matter. That their eternal destiny is important. That this is something that we should be concerned about and not concerned just casually, but we should feel the pain of what it means to be lost and be driven by that. You say, well, what is the problem with the crowd that's got him feeling such a gut-wrenching pain? Well, he tells us in verse 36, the second part in verse 37, he's feeling this compassion. He's gut-wrenched over them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. This is what drove Jesus to that kind of a reaction. He uses two illustrations to help his disciples understand why he felt the way he felt about that sea of people. He uses an illustration of sheep in the field, and he uses an illustration of wheat in a field. And I love how Jesus does this. He just uses images that people knew. When Jesus wants to explain something to people, he doesn't use elevated language that they can't understand. He uses pictures of things that they see every day that were easy to grasp. And everybody understood sheep in a field, and everybody understood wheat in a field. And Jesus marvelously describes this crowd in those terms in a way that they could understand. He says they're like sheep in a pasture. They're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. 
I don't want to spend the time this morning, but you can look in the Old Testament backdrop of this phrase, sheep without a shepherd. It was used throughout the Old Testament as an indictment on the religious leaders of the Old Testament, the religious leaders of Israel. They were constantly being chastised by God because they were supposed to be shepherds who loved their sheep and cared for them, but instead they were shepherds who fed themselves off of the sheep, cared only about themselves, and the sheep were left to fend for themselves. God over and over says, My sheep have no shepherd. It means they're vulnerable. They're in danger. They become food for wild animals. And that's why when Jesus comes along, he captures this illustration in his ministry. And he says, hey, the religious leaders might have left you as sheep without a shepherd, but I, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd who loves his sheep. I'm the good shepherd who will care for you and guard you and protect you. John chapter 10, he says that. And he, and he also uses this illustration to capture the heart of God in Matthew chapter 10. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray? Does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one? So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven. Excuse me. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. The idea is that God is that kind of a shepherd who cares about his sheep. He cares so much about his sheep that he doesn't even want one to stray away without chasing after him. Sheep without a shepherd is this illustration. And when Jesus looks out over this sea of humanity, he knows that the ones who were supposed to be shepherding them have absolutely abdicated their responsibility and nobody was shepherding them. They were lost and they were vulnerable. He says they are helpless and harassed. Those words simply mean being thrown down, utterly helpless from a mortal wound. They were bruised, battered, mangled, ripped apart, worn out, exhausted. That's what those words capture. Harassed and helpless. It's really a a truly pathetic situation. He looks out over the sea and they're like sheep that are wounded, laying in a field all alone with nobody to protect them and nobody to care for them. Exhausted, beaten down, ripped apart, one day from death. If you don't know much about sheep, they're pretty defenseless creatures, right? We don't, we don't tend sheep mostly here in Charleston these days, right? But in those days, people tended sheep all the time. They understood sheep were just, they're, 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 they're prey. They're not predators. There's nothing about a sheep that helps him against a predator. He doesn't have sharp fangs that can bite. He doesn't have big claws that can scratch. He doesn't have feet that allow him to run faster than the predator. He has no natural defenses of his own, right? A sheep can't do anything. Just bad. That's it. They're smelly, they're dirty, they're oily. They're smart in some ways and dumb in other ways. They can wander off and get lost. They can't find food on their own like a goat can even. They have to have a shepherd that takes them to places where there's food. So a sheep without a shepherd has no way to defend itself, has no way to find food. He'll wander off, he'll get lost, he'll get injured, or he'll get eaten, and there's nobody to protect him. The only way the sheep survive is if there's a shepherd to take care of them. And if there's no shepherd to take care of them, they're toast. They're helpless. And they're harassed. And that's how Jesus saw these people, spiritually. Completely vulnerable, completely wounded, 
spiritually battered. They had no hope. They had no help. Exhausted, terrified, lost, desperately in need of a shepherd. And if somebody doesn't do something about it, they are done. Just like a sheep without a shepherd. They're done. Is that how we view lost people? When we look out the sea of humanity that's around us and those who cross through sort of our circles of influence, do we look at them like sheep without a shepherd? Do we look at that person and say, you know what? That person is vulnerable and helpless spiritually. They are wounded and they are hurting. And if, if they don't submit their lives to the good shepherd, they're, they're done. They're done. They will die in that condition. And they'll be eternally lost. Jesus uses a second illustration. He uses that of wheat in a field. He says the harvest is plentiful. When I look out over the sea, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And when I look out over the, the, the sea of people, they're also like a, a, a field of wheat where the harvest is plentiful. Now, there's all kinds of debate about what exactly does Jesus have in mind here when he says that this harvest is plentiful. Probably the most common, and maybe the one you've heard the most, is the idea that Jesus is looking out over the sea of people, and he sees a bunch of people out there who are ready to receive the gospel, like good grain that's ready to be harvested. And the idea is a positive one, that, that somebody just needs to go out there and take the gospel to these people so that they'll believe and can be harvested for the kingdom of God in a positive sort of a way. The idea that, that God has a bunch of people out there sort of just waiting to be saved and the reality is we just need people to go out there and take the gospel to them. Now that's true. That's very true. And if you're particularly reformed in your theology, you really like this illustration because it, it helps motivate you. You, you. you understand that God has chosen from all eternity some to be saved. And when we look over a sea of humanity, we don't know who they are, but we know for sure that there's some people out there who are His and who will believe the gospel. And all we have to do is get out there and start sharing the gospel and the ones that belong to Christ will receive it and they'll believe it and they'll come to Jesus and they'll be saved. And that's true. That's absolutely true. I believe that. And it motivates me in my discipleship for sure. And it may be what Jesus had in mind. But I don't think it's only what he had in mind. There's another option. When we look at this idea of harvest in the Old Testament and in the New, all the way to the book of Revelation, closely associated with harvest is judgment. Is judgment. I think that perhaps at least together with the first view, when Jesus looks out over this crowd... He sees a coming harvest of judgment. And he's moved by that. In Isaiah chapter 17, verse 10, we see this sort of as a backdrop. And then in Joel chapter 3 as well. Let me just read to you Joel chapter 3, verse 11 and following. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. By the way, this is Joel prophesying of the end of time. And he says this, Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in and tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And Joel is giving a picture of the end of time when all the, the people are gathered in the valley of Jehoshaphat for the great battle of Armageddon. And it's a picture of the judgment of God coming on ungodly and unbelieving people. And he uses the illustration of a harvest and a sickle to describe that. 
the multitude is driven to make a decision for the Lord or against. And when they decide against, there's a sickle, a harvest of judgment that comes from which they'll never escape. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus uses this same illustration. You may recall the parable of the wheat and the tares. Do you remember this? There's a farmer has a field and he sows his good seed and somewhere along the way an enemy comes in and sows a bunch of weeds in the middle of his wheat and it all grows up together and discovers it later but he can't figure out the difference between the two because they all look the same and here's what the farmer says actually it's what the point jesus was making let both grow together until the harvest at the harvest time i'll tell the reapers gather the weeds first Bind them in bundles to be burned and gather the wheat into my barn. Jesus sort of captures both of those visions of harvest here. The reality is, when Jesus looks out over that crowd, he understands that there's a fiery hell awaiting a bunch of those people. That there's a harvest that's coming. And it's a dreadful kind of a harvest where they'll be cut down and bundled up and thrown into the fire. And he's overwhelmed, literally, by that reality. That he's surrounded by lost people who are going to die and go to hell. Because Jesus, beyond all people, understood the reality of what hell is like. One author captured it this way. He says this. There's no way to describe hell. Nothing on earth can compare with it. No living person has any real idea of it. No madman in wildest flights of insanity ever beheld its horror. No man in delirium ever pictured a place so utterly terrible as this. No nightmare racing across a fevered mind ever produces a terror to match that of the mildest of hell. No murder scene with splashed blood and oozing wound ever suggested a revulsion that could even touch the borderlands of hell. When Jesus looked over that crowd, he was struck with that reality. We don't like to think about hell. We don't like to think about eternal torment. We don't like to think about a place that the Bible describes as a place where the fire is never quenched and where there's unending darkness and utter loneliness, where a worm never ceases to bite, whatever that means. And the grief of a life eternal apart from the one who made you, enduring his wrath forever, is the daily reality from which there is no relief. We don't like to think about such things. But Jesus couldn't escape that picture. And when he looked out over that crowd, he looked at the faces of those people that were afflicted and suffering, sheep without a shepherd, and he knew. But if somebody doesn't bring the gospel to them, and if they don't respond to it, that's what awaits. And it was gut-wrenching to him. It was gut-wrenching to him to think about that. To look into those eyes and to know that. When you and I can look out at our family and our friends and our city and not be moved by that reality, something is dreadfully wrong. Something is dreadfully wrong when we can look into people's eyes, know that they don't know Christ. Know that that's what awaits them, that kind of a harvest. And yet never speak up. And never be moved by that reality. Something is different in us 
than what is present in Christ. It was that compassion that drove him to do what he did. So then he turns to his disciples and to us and he says this, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He looks out over that sea and says, Man, these people are doomed. They're doomed. The need is remarkable, and the supply of people to go is unimpressive. There are way more people out there that need to hear it than there are people who are willing to go and do something about it. He looks to his disciples. At that point, it's only been him going out and doing it. It's only been him. It's been a solo ministry. And he looks to them and he says, you see this sea of people out there? There's no way. I'm one guy. I can't reach all these people. It's a plentiful harvest, but there's too few people to go. And he tells them, what you need to do is you need to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send more people. Now, they don't know, but they are the very people that they're about to pray for. Because the next thing that Jesus is going to do is send them. But he tells them before that, do you see the need? These people are are facing a harvest and there's nobody to go. There's nobody to go. And if somebody doesn't go, they're doomed. They're toast. They're done. So, he says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. And you notice he doesn't say pray for the lost people. Do you find that interesting? It's not wrong to pray for lost people, but in this case, Jesus doesn't say, pray for all these lost people. He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send more laborers. Pray that God would send more people to go. The need is great, and their need is real, but the way that their need is going to be met is by people who go. And so you can pray for them all day long, but if nobody goes to them, what's the need? What's the point? Pray that God would motivate some people to get off of their duffs and to go out there to them and bring the gospel into their lives. Pray that they would go. Pray that God's people would go. Pray that they wouldn't be apathetic or indifferent or cold. Pray that they wouldn't make excuses or be distracted or be selfish. Pray that they would overcome all their fears, that they would get up and go. Pray for that. Pray that God would send them and pray that they'd be willing to go. Well, Jesus is going to send them. He's going to tell them to pray about that, and then He's going to tell them, by the way, the thing you're praying about, how about you be the fulfillment of it? And there's a remarkable thing about that. When you and I start praying about God sending people to the harvest, God uses that to soften our own hearts and to captivate our own conscience. And often we become a self-fulfilling prayer. But it begins by prayer. It begins by praying. So let me say this. We've talked a lot about the gospel, the message, for the last couple of weeks. And three weeks ago, I really challenged you to get out there, and I really challenged you to go. But there's this other component that I want to leave you with today that's really at the end of this text where Jesus says, here's the problem. People are lost, and there's a harvest that's coming. The reality is there's not enough people to go. So what do God's people need to be about doing? They need to be about praying. It's an indispensable part of the evangelism and discipleship process. 
In fact, if you look back over the history of great movements of the Spirit of God in cities and nations around the world, it almost always can be traced back to a person or a group of people who began to pray for something like that. Who began to pray a prayer just like this one in Matthew chapter 9, verse 38. That began with a group of people saying, God, we're going to get together and we're going to pray that you would send laborers into the harvest. And we're going to see what you do in response to prayer. It begins there. In the late 1800s, excuse me, the mid-1800s in New York City, there was a season of, of spiritual depression. Really, the people had started to fly out of the downtown areas of the city and move out to better uh, housing outside. Uh, church life had grown cold in the city. The gospel was not going out around the city. There was a, a, a layman by the name of Jeremiah Lanfear who was in the city. God had planted there. And he began to be moved by the lostness really around him in his city. He looked out over the city of New York and he saw really a, a bit of what Jesus saw when he looked out over this crowd in Matthew chapter 9. And he was broken for the lostness around him. And he realized that it was a, a mass that was so large that he couldn't penetrate it by himself. And so he was convicted exactly what Jesus called people to do in Matthew chapter 9. That it would begin by praying. And so uh, he got with the leadership of his church and he got permission to set up a prayer meeting. A one hour prayer meeting on Wednesday from 12 o'clock to 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And he put the word out that him and one of the other leaders of the church is going to be there 12 to 1 o'clock on Wednesday for people to come and pray. And he put it out there it's for businessmen and merchants and, and, and people who work to take a pause from the busyness and to stop and to pray together. He didn't know what would happen. He just put it out there. And the first day, that first Wednesday after that, Lampier gathered in the church... And he was by himself at 12 o'clock. A little bit anxious, probably a little bit afraid, not knowing what's going to happen. 12.05 goes by, 12.10, 12.15, nobody in the church building. 12.20 comes and he's by himself. 12.30 finally hears a set of footsteps coming down the stairs. And probably, like uh, many, a, a pastor or a minister or a layperson who's put something out there, he feels a sigh of relief. Oh, goodness gracious, I'm not the only one who's showing up. I feel like that every Sunday. But he, he had somebody come. All of a sudden, a couple other sets of foot, footprints. And it turned out six people showed up around 1230. And they prayed for half an hour. The next week, 40 people showed up on Wednesday to, to join them and pray. And... After that, people started coming and they realized that they couldn't accommodate everybody on Wednesday, so they decided they were just going to do that every day of the week, Monday through Friday from 12 to 1. And you know, in a relatively short amount of time, all of a sudden, there were over 10,000 people gathering in New York City to pray uh, exactly what Jesus calls for in Matthew chapter 9. That God would send laborers into the field. And you know, in a relatively short amount of time, over a million people came to know Christ in that city because of that. Really. This is history. I mean, I'm not just making this up. This isn't a fantasy like in a movie or something. This is the real deal. When Jesus says God's people need to get together and pray for more laborers to go out into the field, and they do it, something remarkable happens. God sends laborers out into the field to do it. He's proven it. 
time and time again. There is no reason why what happened in New York City back in the mid-1800s couldn't happen in Charleston, South Carolina right now. There's no reason. The need is just as great. I gave you statistics a few weeks ago, right in our own zip code, our own zip code, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of at least 20,000 people on the really conservative side don't know Christ. That's a pretty good bunch of sheep without a shepherd. And if we do a five-mile radius from our church, we're now we're expanding to well over 40,000 people, five miles from us right here. The harvest is plentiful. It is indeed. So what are we supposed to do? Two things that I'm going to ask of you this morning. I told you I want you to do something. I'm not preaching just to give you information. Number one, I think we need to make it a high priority in our lives to cultivate compassion for the lost. To cultivate compassion. If we find ourselves apathetic and cold and indifferent, we need to begin to cultivate compassion. And that begins with praying, God, break my heart for the lost. Help me to see lost people like they really are. Sheep without a shepherd. A harvest awaiting judgment. Don't let me be cold. Don't let me be indifferent. Don't let me be apathetic. Don't let me not care. Don't let me be so caught up in my own self and my own things that I just don't care anymore about anyone else. And then secondly, consistently pray for laborers to be sent. Consistently pray. Lord, send laborers into the field that we're in. Send laborers into our city. Send them. Send laborers in general and send laborers from among us to go. I want to be that specific. I want to give you a specific way to apply this. This is um, challenges in Matthew 9:38. So let me ask you if you would do this. Almost everybody has some sort of a smartphone, right? Why don't you go into your smartphone and set the, an alarm for 9:38? It can be morning or night, depending on which you prefer, so that that alarm goes off every day at that time and reminds you to stop what you're doing and to do what Christ has called us to do here to pray for laborers to go into the field. I don't, you don't need to pray for an hour. Just stop. Lord Jesus, send laborers into my city with the gospel so that people could come to faith, so that the sheep would have a shepherd, so that those who are facing a harvest of judgment wouldn't face a harvest of righteousness instead. 9.38. I'm going to do it at night. You do whatever you want to. Monday through Friday or seven days a week, I don't care. Just set the alarm every day. Stop and pray for that. It may be harder for us to gather like they did in New York City, but we can be wherever we are and at the same time do that, can't we? I'm going to ask you right now, will you commit to do that? Will you commit to stop and pray at 938? Just this prayer. Lord, send laborers into the field. And it could be a particular field that you're in at the moment. It could be our city as a whole. Or it could be some particular sheep that you're concerned about. But the prayer is, Lord, send laborers out into the field. That's my challenge to you this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we've, we've, we've got a glimpse into your heart this morning. 
We've seen what motivates you, what drives you, what moves you. And we have to confess, when we're being honest, that we're not moved by the same things that often. It's easy for us to plow through a day and not care about sheep without a shepherd. It's easy for us to blast through a week or a month and not even give two seconds of thought to our city and the vast lostness around us and the dreadful harvest that awaits. Begin to cultivate within us as a body and as individuals a compassion for the lost. That that reality might become a gut-wrenching truth to us like it was to you. That it might motivate us in such a way that we care deeply about it more than we care about our fears and our insecurities. And Lord, we pray specifically for our city that you would send laborers out into the field. That you would send men, that you would send women, that you would send teenagers, you would send kids out to go tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ. To tell them that there's a good shepherd, that they don't have to be a sheep sheep without a shepherd. But there's a good shepherd who cares for their soul, who protect them and love them and care for them and provide for them, even throughout eternity. Laborers who go and tell them about a harvest that's coming in a way that they can escape eternal judgment and receive eternal reward. Lord, there may be some even right now in this place that know because you've been calling them for a long time to go somewhere into the harvest. And they've resisted it. Whatever their resistance is, destroy it, Lord, we pray in this moment. And drive them outward that they might obey you in that call. As a church, Lord, corporately, give us clear vision for how it is we're to go and who we're to send. But, Lord, whatever you do, don't let us be content just sitting around here, patting each other on the back and filling up on your word. Help us to put 938 on our schedule and to stop and to pray and to obey you and to see what you'll do. Lord, if there's somebody here who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, they've heard about a harvest and a situation of being a sheep without a shepherd, that's them. I pray that you would drive them to find you today, Lord Jesus. Or that they would step out in a moment and come talk to me or somebody in the back who can help lead them to you. Do your work in us, Lord, and among us, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.